Actor and filmmaker Ann Johnston Brown has spent the past 35 years navigating the ups and downs of Hollywood. With a master's degree in theater arts, Ann was a professor at the prestigious American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles and is the author of several books published by Smith & Krauss, the world's largest of its kind. Her films on the subject of homelessness have won countless awards, and her voice can be heard throughout the world in a variety of television and radio commercials, as well as the audiobooks of many New York Times and USA Today best-selling authors. And now, she brings to you the best of what she's learned. Welcome to The Actor's Guide. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The Actor's Guide. Well, today I have a very special guest. Uh, he is uh, uh, he's everything. He's a filmmaker, a director, an author, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, he's an acting teacher, and he is going to be giving us a lot of tips, a lot of advice uh, that I think that is going to benefit uh, you, the listener, and me. Uh, so I am very excited about bringing on Jamie Paulinetti. Uh, he is uh, on the phone right now with me. How you doing, Jamie? I'm great, Ann. Thank you. Before we get into some of the, the actual tips and advice, I want to know how, how you got started in, in the industry. What, what, what's your story? Yeah, it is, it's, uh, I think it's an unusual path. <laughs> I've, had, I've had really two lives that have intersected and really remained overlapping both in my kind of philosophical approach to each of them and the worlds that I've worked in. And yeah. when I came out of college, the very first job I got, this is a, almost like a detour, the very first job I got, I was an LA County Sheriff's deputy. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was just a freak thing in the it wasn't a freak thing. That is what I was going to do. It's what I meant to do. I studied uh, social ecology and sociology and criminal justice wow. in college at UC Irvine. That was my undergrad. And, you know, I was going to go to work for the government and they wanted me to work um, in law enforcement first. And so fast forward a bit and I was racing my bicycle then. Uh, as in the Tour de France, that well, kind okay, of thing. Okay, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, we've got to touch on on your your, your cycling. Yes. Yeah. And if you're, you know, I'm, I guess I'm going to kind of age myself now, but <laughs> this was 1986. Oh, boy. And so at that time, there was no professional cycling in America. A lot of people don't know that, but there literally was no sanctioned professional cycling in America. It just mm -hmm. didn't exist. We had had the 1984 Olympics, and the United States did unbelievably well in cycling in the 1984 Olympics, yeah. won a bunch of gold medals. And that kind of spurred the sport in our country. And I was part of that kind of dynasty that got pro cycling going in the United States. Wow. And so I left the sheriff's department um, to sign a professional cycling contract at the end of 1988. Mm. And so it was like a freak thing, as I mentioned earlier, I misspoke, but it was a freak thing how I got into the sport just through a friend. It's, it's really not that interesting. So we're going to leave that out. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah, I ended up being a professional cyclist uh, for until 1995. Wow. And so that was what I like to say was my first life. Okay. <clears throat> so here's, here's where some of the overlap comes in. I had always been able to write, not, not ride like on a bike, but write. <laughs> right. And uh, I was writing a bunch of 
in the pack perspective stories for various magazines and you know for the your younger audience i'm gonna have to explain a little bit so you know we didn't have this thing (laughs) no we didn't (laughs) early 90s so if you wanted to write you had to get published that's right yeah and so um that's how i really started as a professional writer yeah while i was a writer i was writing (laughs) stories and then at that time in the early 90s i'll keep this short and wrap this part up um cycling got huge and it was on television all the time on major networks nbc abc espn uh, fox sports like all all the big ones and i started helping produce some of the shows as i was still riding my bike okay so that that gave me exposure to the entertainment industry in a kind of ancillary way. Mm-hmm. So here's where the next overlap comes. If I back up just a touch, in 1990, I met a woman. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, I always say that should be the first line of a novel if I ever write a novel. <laughs> that's gonna be, in 1990, I met a woman. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. So anyway, um, and she was finishing her master's degree in screenwriting at UCLA. And she had gotten her undergraduate degree uh, at Columbia as an English literature major and then was, you know, finishing up at UCLA. And I met her in 1990 when I was a pro cyclist. And, you know, we ended up being married later. But what she did is she transitioned me from writing stories to writing screenplays and working in the entertainment industry and learning about the genre. And Mm -hmm. I had always been a film buff and just loved film, you know, as a fan. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was my liaison to the entertainment industry. And that was 1990. And then did you, did you stop writing, uh, writing uh, when you started writing? Yeah, no. So that's why it's so unusual. And you almost have to keep the chronology straight. We need a kind of calendar. Yeah. Because there, there was an overlap. And I didn't retire from pro cycling until 1995. No. But uh, as early as um, the early 90s, I was working with television broadcasting. And then she did her master's thesis film as a short documentary on cycling and and i was kind of the subject and my teammates were the subject and so now i had direct access to doing the entire film process you know as not only one of the subjects but as the director's fiance right yeah okay and and so did you uh, when you decided what you know this seems like you said this is a real process i mean you you just kind of uh it just the 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 path of your life brought you into this was there any training you were getting in 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 writing and 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 all the other uh in this process yeah, so at that point, um, I, I hadn't gone to any formal training in right. terms of film school. I would do that later. Okay. But as you know, you know, when your spouse is uh, deeply into something, mm-hmm. you tend to get uh, a lot of exposure yes. to the world. You get and, immersed, you know, totally exactly. immersed. Mm-hmm. And I was reading everything she wrote, you know, at that time coming right. out of UCLA master screenwriting program. She's trying to get an agent. She's trying to get her films made, oh. and she's writing screenplays. And I'm correcting them all, and we're discussing them, <laughs> talking about structure. I'm giving her notes, and both creative notes and structural notes. And you know, I I remember she had me read uh, Sid Field's book, the original one. I, oh, I can't yes. remember the title, The Bible of Screenwriting, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was my first, I'll say, instruction in 
screenwriting right. was reading his book and then reading all of her. I think she wrote five screenplays before she got an agent. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's, as you know, that's not that unusual. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, that was quick. So that was, yeah. yeah. That was my first uh, education in, in the actual film industry. And then she ended up a couple, she had a couple jobs as writer's assistants and things. And then she ended up um, doing a pilot, which mm-hmm. uh, with a guy named Lon Diamond, Lon Diamond, who did Parker Lewis Can't Lose, that mm-hmm. great oh, old yeah. show. Sure. Yeah. And so she's working with Lon, and they did a pilot, and then I was, you know, involved in that process um, as well. And this is still while I'm racing as a professional all over the world. Mm. And uh, but again, because she's my fiance, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm in on the process. So that was that was my kind of ramping up to right. any formal uh, training. And then when I retired from pro cycling, I got a job as editor of Bicycle Guide magazine, mm-hmm. which was owned by Peterson Publishing up on Wilshire. And of course, at the time they were, I think, the biggest publisher of magazines wow. in the country. So it was a, it was a, it was a big, big switch. You know, well, so, now you um, you you got into commercial production, though, uh, you know, here here you were, you know, dabbling in screenwriting. You, you're now editing a magazine. Where in your process did you get into the commercial production? It was right after that. So we're at that. We're mm, at that OK, point now. This, is, this is 1995 and 96. I went back to film school at UCLA. OK. And I started, you know, studying film and theater, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I ended up only staying at the magazine for exactly one year. We did 12 issues. Mm. And these were, you know, it was was thrown into the fire because they were (laughs) monthly issues, a hundred and some page color. And, you know, it was... It was a big, big job, and but but really good for me right. uh, to to be saddled with that kind of workload. So, but right after that, I left the magazine and started producing commercials and writing and directing commercials. And the way I did that was, I got hired by at the time it was called Media One. It became AT and T, which was the local Southern California cable network. Mm-hmm. And which you probably, I, I think you were in LA then, were you? I in, was, yes, yeah. in the 80s and so, 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you remember, you know, um, now you have this huge boom of cable television with all of these commercials right. that are being directed and produced and, and just like by the hundreds because there's so many networks now right. and the local cable stations own some of the airtime. And so they put together these. Um, sales teams to go out and sell the ads and then they worked with us on the production side and i i would do everything from a commercial for a mom and pop flower store to a little bit later southern california lincoln mercury dealers Mm. or chevrolet or you know um everything in between so uh it was a it was a great opportunity um were you directing were you doing everything were you casting and directing i mean uh, what was your uh, you had every role or did you have other people working with you so you know again we're owned by media one at the time uh, but at&t we'll just say because people know that name and we had a production office with a couple editors um but i was titled as a 
producer. And as you know, that's the most overused word in Hollywood. <laughs> and so as a producer, I'm writing the content. I'm meeting sure. with the owners of the businesses. I'm also meeting with the agencies if they have an agency. And some of them big, like Chaya Day, Falcon, M80, like huge, huge agencies. Uh-huh. You know, um, And then also directing the commercials. And then usually not editing. Usually, yeah. although I could edit at the time, I had editors, but we were so busy. So, um, yeah, I would do the whole soup to nuts. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and again, the here's why it was so valuable. Because of the variety of client and budget, mm-hmm. you know, we, we'd do a commercial for five or $10,000, and then I'd do one for a quarter million. And wow. it's just a completely different workflow. Well, how and, long did you do this? How long were you in the commercial industry? Because I know you went into filmmaking, and uh, cool. so was yeah. did, did did was this a transitional thing, or did you one day get up and say, "I'm done with commercials"? No, what happened is in 2000, the Screen Actors Guild told me I was done with commercials. <laughs> okay, which well, I'm sure you remember. <laughs> I do, I do. They they told us no more. Yep. And for your listeners, what happened? Yep. Uh, they had a huge strike. Yeah. And uh, they were literally blackballing people. That's right. Um, if you did not adhere to their rules and you could not shoot commercials right. in Los Angeles, it just yeah. was not going to happen. And and I believe you may remember this, and but I believe that started in 2000, right? In the middle of the year? Well, I... Really? I don't know. I thought it... It feels like it was earlier. I don't know. There was one earlier. Yeah. There was a big one. So, so again, yeah. I'm, I'm getting up there now, and some of my memory dates and times <laughs> get overlapped. But I'll, I'll put it this way. We were basically out of business, and I had kept my hands in bicycle racing mm-hmm. and uh, had been racing locally and regionally on the weekends, you know, for fun. But mm-hmm. I had been a world-class professional, and so it wasn't hard for me to stay in shape and continued to race. And at that time, Southern California was a hotbed for pro cycling. And so the racing level was very, very high. And, and this come this becomes important for this reason. When the commercial actors went on strike, mm-hmm. uh, I had written a treatment for a feature film documentary called The Hard Road hmm. um, in 1996 or seven in film school. And I tried to get the film made and we couldn't get it done. And so when 2000 rolled around or whenever the actors went on strike and I, I could not work anymore, I just started racing all the time just to, you know, to really just to have something that I love to do and my other passion. And I was on uh, and running a very, very good amateur team mm-hmm. uh, of cyclists. Yeah. And so we took this treatment that I had and we brought it to our sponsor at the time, that sponsor's name was Net Zero, and they were an internet startup. Yes, kind of. I remember yeah. it very well. Yeah. Okay, great. So they were sponsoring our cycling team. I think they called we went, themselves Net Zero because they weren't charging anything at first. Wasn't that the the, the reasoning for the, the name? That is absolutely correct. It was free. And I yeah, loved it because it was free. <laughs> Yeah, everyone did, uh, and uh, that didn't work out for them. No, but, it didn't. It did because they raised it to like nine ninety nine a month or something. Yeah, 
They panic. People panic. $9.99 a month. I refuse to pay it. I know. I know. Anyway, so to finish up this part of the story, um, Net Zero, our team had done so well, and we were going into the 2001 season, Uh and the seasons begin in January, the bicycle racing seasons. And I said to them, look, I have this treatment. I said, I can put a team together because of my past, because of who I was in the past, and because of where I you know, am in the sport in this country. I can put a very good professional team together and I want to shoot this movie around it. And they just said, you know, go. And we got the green light. And that's how I transitioned from commercials to feature film. And that was, it was a feature documentary, but, and I think this is really important and it may come up later. I do mention in the book though. Um, I wrote a script for that feature documentary film. Mm-hmm. I did not have an idea and go out with camera crews and just shoot and shoot and shoot and then hope to have a movie when I'm done. And, um, you know, that tends to be arduous and really difficult. Mm-hmm. Instead, based on what I thought was going to happen during the season, I'll tell you about the movie in a minute, I shot and scripted around that. And then, of course, you have to do a little improvisation. And, you you know, you do end up in the edit room with really high shooting ratios and all of that. But, you know, the the film was scripted. I had a choice of where to send my camera crews. We did well over 100 races that year. I can't shoot 100 races. (laughs) And so, you know, we picked the races where I thought they would give us interesting storylines and story elements that would make for a good film. And the theme... The theme of that movie, The Hard Road, is to sacrifice everything to pursue a dream. Oh, wow. And so it was a universal theme. Yeah. And um, we followed this first-year professional cycling team because we turned, we registered the team professional. Mm-hmm. And then we followed it through an entire season. And every single rider on the team, with the exception of myself and one other guy, they were all rookies. Oh. And so you have this kind of transitional thing for them where they've all been cycling their whole lives they've they have up to that point sacrificed everything to get their first pro contract and now they're just thrown into the fire and let's see if they can make it you know it's like the triple a ball player that gets called up to the big leagues in the playoffs it's like are you sure you want this right right well now you know how did how did the film i mean once the film was made how did it go over? I mean, what, where, where, where was it? Uh, where was it uh, shown? And and yeah, so I'll screened. tell you a secret. I'll tell you a secret. I'm, mm-hmm. gonna, I'm only going to tell your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Just those movie, three. To mm-hmm. date, that movie has been the most successful internationally and financially thing that I've ever done. Really? Mm-hmm. And I'll wow. tell you why. I'll tell you why, and this is why I made the movie, because, you know, as I mentioned, in the early 90s, I had raced all over the world, and I knew the popularity of the sport. And I also knew from being a player in the sport, the fascination with American cyclists all Mm -hmm. over the world. Now, you know, at that point, Lance Armstrong had already come along, and so, you know, he helped elevate the sport in America. Mm -hmm. But I knew there was a market for it because it was a story that had never been told. And if you go any to any major developed country and even most of the third world countries Mm -hmm. in the world, there are two sports and two sports only. Right. Soccer and cycling. <laughs> okay, that makes and sense. It. And they call it football, I think, in other countries. And then cycling, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the movie played 
I did a I did a screen I did a screening tour and film festivals and private screenings. I I bet and I did seventy five of them wow. all over the world. And did two, and, and you were doing these in person. You were actually taking the films around. You didn't get a distributor at that time, right? So here's how that happened. That's why I told the early part of the story. So if you remember, I was editor of the largest cycling magazine in the country at that point. I had been a, quote, celebrity in the sport. And so I had contacts in the television world, in the publication world. And again, this is still the infancy of the Internet. It's 2001. Right. And so all of my contacts uh, in the sport of cycling, in the publicity area, were the ones that marketed my movie and Mm -hmm. we didn't spend a penny i didn't spend one penny to market the film and it was everywhere played in 70 countries i mean it was just everywhere that is uh, amazing oh my gosh i'm sure a lot of people hearing this right now because i've got a lot of people that are that are screenwriters and producers that listen to the show that's going to make them sick (laughs) yeah i mean those days are gone unfortunately you know Um, but yeah we I, because I was a quote, famous professional vocalist, yeah. uh-huh. you know, turned filmmaker. And because what I left out is that year of 2001, the team I ran, sponsored by Net Zero, it was called the Net Zero Cycling Team, yeah. and that we shot the film around, mm-hmm. just had a fantastic season. For oh. a first year pro team, we won like 60 races. Wow. The team was just incredible. We were giant slayers. And, um, it was just, you know, I've had some, I've, I've had some hand of the gods moments in my life, and and that was that was one of them. Well, let's let's talk about another movie that you did more recently, which is called Trickster. I I want right. I want to hear. I I know there's a lot between that movie and this movie, but right. give me kind of like the 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 walk up to that. But also right. let's talk about it. And I want everyone, and we're gonna link uh, the movie. Anything you know you've done, we're gonna link to this podcast. But okay. tell tell me a little bit about that movie. Okay, so yeah, they can look that movie up on trickstertheMovie.com. That's the best place, but it is on a hundred and some platforms now. You know, you can find it. But wow. there's been a there's been a series done called Trickster now since then that I didn't do. Those people that did that, you know, they knew about the film and it's loosely based on, but it's it's different. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see the, the film, TricksterTheMovie.com is where it is. Okay. And yeah, so that's a, a really interesting story too. So. You know, what we've left out here is that if I back up, and that's what I mean by all these overlapping <laughs> kind of worlds. Sure. If we back up, um, when I was at UCLA, I met a woman named Lorraine Vozoff that was teaching the Stanislavski method mm. there. And uh, that was in 96, I think. Yeah. And so I immediately started studying the method mm-hmm. and started going to theater and taking classes and studying theater and then Lorraine and uh, another gentleman named Tom Simmons who's a, a very well-known professional actor uh, and I we started a little theater in LA called Theater Group Studio mm-hmm. and that was on Robertson above the 10. Oh yeah. And that was in the mid to late 90s I actually cannot remember the year so now we're overlapping into these other things that mm. I talked about like commercial production right. the hard road like all this is happening at the same time and we opened a new theater and we're doing theater literally like every night 
You know, wow, what a busy guy you were. Oh my gosh. Oh, incredible. Yeah. And <laughs> my my now ex-wife <laughs> will tell you that, you know, between that and what she was doing, which was working in the industry, it was just it was crazy. Yeah. It was a crazy, crazy time. But it so was anyway. great. I mean, I'm sorry, when you tell stories like this, I just get excited because I, I I don't know. Okay. Those of us who are who are obsessed with uh, with the this industry like you know just just they staying productive that way it's just it's just food it's it's it it's is. our nourishment you know it is yeah so i I'm, i got to that point because trickster the movie came out of my theater the outwater playhouse okay and i opened the outwater playhouse in 2005 uh-huh. and uh, it's in los angeles uh outwater village a lot of people don't know where that is i'm sure you do but oh, yeah. a lot of people don't yeah um and it's right in the heart of la in between silver lake los Feliz, not far from north hollywood mm-hmm. you know anyway so i opened that water playhouse in 2005 and Fast forward to 2018, 2017, I had had a full career in film and TV and and uh, theater, of course. I probably wrote and directed 60 or 70 plays. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't even know. There's just no way to know how many. Um, I, I lost track. But, uh, but the point is, I had a very, very strong, very powerful theater company. Mm. And um, that's, you know, not only actors, producers, directors you know, my network of people in the industry that I had um, been with over the years was strong. Like we'd never been stronger than probably 2017 and the making of Trickster. And the only reason I was able to get it made was because it came out of my theater company. And that that's more um, of a production discussion, but I wrote the film in a very short period of time all of the roles except for three of them, I actually wrote for the actors that are in the movie. Wow. And so it's one of my favorite things to do is to write for actors once I've worked with them for a long time. Sure, sure. And I yeah. think, uh, now was John Henry, John F. Henry, uh, was he yeah. in that? He was. He played Mosley, um, the bartender, the the kind of bartender who lost his faith. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, so John was. John had been a member of my theater company. I don't and, know. And our and our listeners. Uh, well, first of all, John was on the show, and uh, and and of course, I've worked with John personally as well uh, mm-hmm. in my movies. And and uh, well, actually, no, he was. Yeah, he was in my movies and and in my theater uh, production. But mm-hmm. uh, the audience will remember, and he talked about this theater and he talked about you he gave you a lot of credit for uh, for just just and we are going to discuss your book and and he certainly is uh, a fan of 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 your technique and 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 the and the fact that you draw it all from Stanislavski's method um so tell me really quick though uh and we're going to link trickster uh everything to the podcast Uh let me know uh how many you told us you've, you've done 60 some odd plays You've you've written mm-hmm. and produced. How many movies have you have you written and produced? So, um, if you're talking production to the point of distribution, after the Hard Road, I did another feature called Pro, and then um, I did this feature film called Trickster. I did another short one, um, a short film that you know got got distribution on a lot of different platforms that was called slipping but then i also did episodic series called the complex one called angels in paradise Mm. another one called red pill wonderland 
Um, you know, so I've, I've done, I don't know how many that is, you know, quite a few either episodic or, or films. And Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, they're similar, but different. Um, and you know, so I'm not, I I don't know, six or seven, I guess, or seven or eight, but then I also worked, I left this out, but my ex-wife, um, ended up getting hired on a television show called Pacific Blue, Mm -hmm. which you may remember. It was like Baywatch on bikes shot in Venice in the 90s. And uh, I worked on that show as well with her. Um, And so as a technical consultant, second unit uh, advisor and that kind of thing. So uh, I wrote a number of episodes of television. And again, that's a kind of another part of the story, but, but again, all all this overlaps, right? Right. right. Kind of overlaps. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, many, I guess, yeah, is the answer. Right, right. <laughs> what is, g- give us just a, a little a little preview of, of what your advice is for uh, actors and, and how they should prepare themselves and, and their craft before we okay. actually get into the book, because uh, that, that is going to be different. Okay. Yeah, because that is really what, that's the reason I wrote the book. Sure. And so um, I guess to put some context to it, we, when I opened the theater in 2005, I opened it as a true nonprofit. We've mm-hmm. never, I'm very proud to say we've never ever had any employees that are paid and we've never lived on donations. Wow. And so um, what we did is we opened a space as a creative workspace in order to give anyone in Hollywood an artistic outlet, you know, where they found they weren't being satisfied in the industry Mm -hmm. and of course we did you know actual productions and we had a playwriting festival for five years and we put on a number of those plays and we did all of that but the reason i mention that is because within that we i taught classes and all the various aspects of filmmaking but the real focus was on the theater company and the approach that actors would use, uh, you know, in order to one, get hired to have a career three, have artistic satisfaction. Right. And so, uh, as we ebbed and flowed through the various years and changes that our industry has seen that, you know, very well, mm-hmm. uh, I've adapted all of that, um, you know, in the classes, And that was part one of my interview with Jamie Palanetti, who is the author of the book Acting as an Art Form, and he is uh, only just beginning to give us some great advice. This is part two of my interview with Jamie Palanetti. One of the most, in my experience, I'd love to hear your opinion, but one of the most kind of overused and misunderstood phrases in Hollywood is the method. And, uh, you know, if you study Stanislavski's work and you study Strasberg and you study Uta Hagen mm-hmm. and, and you study Garfine and you study, you know, uh, Strasberg and all of the greats, right? Mm-hmm. They all took this work that Stanislavski originated, Stella Adler's another one, and and they made it their own. Right. Mm-hmm. And they developed a system, you know, uh, for actors to study with all kinds of various techniques and trainings. And the word that I have kind of coined is workflow. Right. You know, it's not, that's not my word, but I hadn't, I hadn't seen that word used in the acting and directing and teaching, which I also want to talk about profession 
And really, I always thought of it in that way. And it's because now we're all the way back at the beginning. It's because I come from professional sports and in professional sports, you need a workflow, Mm -hmm. you know, and so uh, a pragmatic workflow. Mm -hmm. And it it also, you know, applies to art. Um, You can you can hope for inspiration and you can go on inspiration and you can go on improvisation and all those things are important. But at some point. As you well know, you have to sit down and do the work. Right, and I'm looking at your book right now, uh, the workflow section, which is at the beginning. I'm seeing you've got 25, 25 things that you ask the actor to consider and to and and to to answer questions to answer. And we're going to go into this, but right. yes, the workflow. I I love the way it it. You know, a lot of people would say, "Oh no, we're just living." You know, as actors, we're just living and mm-hmm. and creating life, and that should be organic right. and and workflowing yep. and writing things down. That's just you know just too you know that's too heady and. I disagree. I'm with you. I'm with you on on the planning thing. Let's call it an important aspect. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you when it doesn't function well is when you're on a set for 14 hours (laughs) and I need 20 takes. Right. And I need them 19 days in a row. That's how many days it took me to shoot Trickster. Mm -hmm. And I need 45 days to shoot the movie and I only have 19. Right. And if we don't go to the set ultimately prepared and the actors aren't completely ready to go and and not looking for inspiration at that point but we're in what i call performance level at that point there's just no way i can shoot the movie in 19 days Mm -mm. it's not going to happen no and so um that's where the pragmatic aspect of it you know comes into play And, and that's why i always stress look we need these incredible creative flow states another thing that you know you asked me about in your questions we need the flow state but in order for you to get to the flow state you need to have training and preparation in the intellectual uh conscious mind that's right in order to set your subconscious free Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. Yes. Uh, what a beautiful uh, description of really what's happening. It's not, you know, it, that is exactly it. Because we put these things uh, in, in our mouths and in our ears and in our minds and, and everything. And once we absorb them, we don't have to think about them anymore. Correct. That's correct, Anna. In, in, in cycling mm-hmm. and in professional sports, we call that muscle memory. I was just going to say that exactly, muscle memory. And and I guess the, uh, we think about, you know, the brain is a muscle. Everything is a, a muscle. You know, well, is the things that, that, that beat inside of us, uh, they will all remember this work that we've done. I love it. It becomes Correct. an unconscious act then. Uh, and, and we can play organically. And I hate that word. That gets overdone, too. But, but we it's true. It's but, true. Yes, but we can play, uh, and, and I love the word play too. My audience knows that I use this word a lot because that's why we call it a play. We are playing. And yep. and and children, you don't have to tell them how to play. They right. do it organically. And right. and the problem with us as adults is we we tend to just uh forget how to just let our unconscious take over and just and just and just and just you know work uh you know from from our spirit. I guess it's a right. spiritual thing, I, I would say. Um, I, I, I want to yeah. agree, hundred percent. I think now, now you're now you're delving into, you know, what what we call the flow state, oh, and, yeah. and 
you know, and we're, we're constantly trying to get there. And you know, mm-hmm. through the work you've done, it, it happens, but it doesn't happen all the time. And, and right. you need to have some preparation. And now we're lapsing over into, mm-hmm. you know, what is consciousness mm-hmm. and where does creativity and inspiration and imagination, where do they come from? You know, and, um, uh, Stanislavski talked about the double function. And I think yeah. a lot of, of, of this uh, that we're talking about is, is really what that, that, what he meant and and it's and having the ability to to be mentally and consciously aware of what's going on but allowing this this unconscious uh you know reaction and 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 total just like i've said before immersion into uh the world of our characters uh you know just just to let it live let it be that's it if I can make a comment on that, because I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, one of the things I left out is that while I was at UCLA, I studied with a uh, guy named um, uh, Eugene Lazaroff. Mm. And Eugene was one of the premier actors in the Moscow Arts Theaters for, yeah. theater for years in Russia and, and taught there and directed there and was one of their highest level actors before he came to America and mm-hmm. had a fantastic career. But the point is when I was studying with him, you know, he used to talk about the difference between Stanislavski's work in Russian and in English. I've, I've heard this before. Yes. This yeah, is, uh, it is 100% true. And, and what mm-hmm. you're discussing now is that's one of the most, I think, underrated parts of uh, Stanislavski's work that mm-hmm. that people don't consider is that he's doing existential art mm-hmm. and you know it's poetry and you're trying to now translate existential art from Russian to English and Eugene used to laugh out loud at a lot of the terms and phrases and tools and exercises that were written in English as he struggled to get the concepts clear yeah. for the American audience. Yeah. And he said it's just lost in translation. And what you mentioned in this area of the flow state, it's one of the biggest ones. Oh, wow. And, uh, and they're all throughout Stanislavski's work. And I make reference to them in my book mm-hmm. in, I don't know, a dozen places where, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this one of the one of the best ones is um, is Stanislavski talks a lot about illuminating the human condition, yep. you know. That's a doesn't isn't that the main goal of the actor? Didn't you call? Yes, Uh, and I was noticing too in look, uh, you know, reading the book. And and let's just go ahead and start talking about the book. Um, uh, and when I say the book, I am referring to uh, this fantastic. Uh, I'm going to call it, uh, you know, uh, an actor prepares written by uh, oh. <laughs> Jamie Paulinetti. I, I can't accept that. I just can't. Like the, the, you're talking about a god. He's a demigod. But, a demigod, and I can't accept it. But thank you. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, Jamie, and the reason I say this is because. Before I even knew that you were method, um, and again, when we discuss method, we know what we're talking about. Uh, Stanislavski's, uh, you know, actual meaning of all of the terms. It's interesting when I was looking through the book and I would sometimes read ahead and then I would go back and I was just trying to, to because uh, there's a lot of scenes that you've written in the book for the for the actors to work uh, in, in you know, with. Uh, yeah, 159 scenes. It's gone. Yeah. Yes, and so what you do is you you talk about you know uh, you you work you, the workflow. You talk about you know what the uh, what an actor has to ask of themselves uh, uh, for their character on behalf of the characters, and the and the 
worlds of the scenes, and we want to talk about that word world that you refer to. But I was noticing you were using, for instance, the word communion. Um, I, I, you know, Stanislavski talked a lot about communion. Um, And uh, and I'm going to skip ahead because I was going to ask you this question later. But I want you to to talk about because we, you know, as we're discussing Stanislavski and the method, and and we're going to discuss a few, uh, uh, several terms that he used. And I noticed that you're you you're you're going even further, and maybe it's because of your work with. uh, uh, the Russian master, you know, there uh, was it UCLA where you met him. Yeah. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I feel like uh, I feel like that he probably gave you a lot, a, a much better understanding. And I, I personally benefited so much from reading some of your uh, explanations of these terms. Let's talk about communion. You, okay. you, you connected action verbs with mm-hmm. communion. Tell, tell our audience about what your what you mean by this. Okay, so those are those are two um, separate but closely closely related tools. And in the book, I call them tools because there's no there there is no really one way to use any of them. Like any great tool, they can be used for a lot of purposes. And when you start using a number of tools together, that's when you can really build something great. And all the tools in this book and in Stanislavski's work, they overlap. And that's what makes it a method or a system, which is a different definition of those two words in English. It's a system where that, whereas when you start to work on communion, understand how we use that word or tool. I'm going to use both those words kind of synonymously. Now, Mm -hmm. if you use the word tool as commune of communion, you start to understand what it is. And then you also add the verbs that the actor's playing or the actions they're playing. What are they doing on the line? You know, what's the verb, not what's the line, not what's the dialogue. What are you doing on the line? You know, are you seducing? Are you teasing? Are you seeking information? Are you restricting? What What's the verb? And it usually, you know, when you say action verb, it has, a, you know, we use verbs all the time, like uh-huh. the word, the verb be. To yeah. When we are being... Okay, that that's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot of action in the word being, right. uh, but right. but you're talking about action things that drive us to do something. Uh, so and then and that's connected to communion and how right. how how uh, t- tell us again about the connection. Yeah, so let's talk about communion because it's probably the one tool or word that is the the most broadly used in my theater and when I'm directing actors because it has multiple meanings depending on how we're discussing it. Right. So I'm going to say that communion is the unspoken link between two souls, between two actors, characters, two people. It's the energy transmission between them, right. the communal link. Okay, what kind of communion is going on between these two actors? Uh, A real world kind of example that I use is if I ask anyone to sit in a public place and watch two people that they know very well eavesdrop on them, Mm -hmm. say their mother and their father, their brother and their sister, you know, it doesn't matter, their best friend and their best friend's lover, it doesn't matter who. If you watch two people Mm -hmm. and they have just had a bad argument mm. and they're sitting together at dinner and they're not speaking. Yes. And I ask you what's going on between them. 
99.9% of the people are going to be able to tell me, oh, they're in a fight. And there's tension. They feel the tension. That's it. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And it's those two players, we'll call them players because they're now players in our film if we turn a camera on and film them. Right. The communion between them is palpable. Yeah. Okay. It's real. Yeah. It has an energy. There's a sixth sense that we have that we're able to pick up on it. And then I asked them, to, I go further and I say, well, tell me how you know this. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, I don't know. I said, well, are, are they moving differently? No, not really. Are they eating their dinners differently? No, not really. Are they talking to each other? No, they're not talking to each other. That's it. And I said, well, what if they just made love before dinner and they're in a blissful state? and they're not talking, would that feel different? Oh, yes. Well, why? Mm -hmm. You yeah, know, tell right. me why. A and this is where we start to cross over into the magical element of what we do as filmmakers and actors and directors. And, you know, um, in the theater, is it's communion. It's the unspoken energy that people are able to bring, you know, to situations uh, and to tell stories. And, and you're and, talking about the communion between the actors and on right. the stage. And, right. and But then there's also a communion between the person that was watching and sensing that That's communion. That's the audience. That's mm -hmm. right. The, the, mm -hmm. the, or the, the camera's eye. Uh, yeah. the, there's, there's actually two, you know, there's two elements of that, and not to cut you off, but, no, you know, let's say, let's say we get two actors on a stage or in front of the camera, because for me, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. We get them up there performing, and yes, it's the communion between the two actors as professional actors, but it's also the specificity of the communion that we are creating between the characters. Right. And that's done through workflow. Right. Through finding and defining and making specific one of Stanislavski's favorite, most used words. He says, God is in the specific. Mm. And this is what he means. This is one of those translations from Russian to English that is so hard for me to explain, mm. even to actors that I've worked with for years. God is in the specific. And he, it's not a religious statement. No. What he means is that creativity, the explanation of the human condition, is mm. in the specificity of behavior and feelings between two people, or in this case, characters. Mm -hmm. And that has to be trained into the act and it has to be observed and then helped along by the director or the conductor in order to tell the story in the way that we want to tell it. And it's not the words, Anne. Right. The words are important, but it's the communion right. that does it. And the com and communion just has so much meaning behind it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the actual understanding of the actors for why they're doing what they're doing and right. feeling and thinking what they're right. thinking. And and you know what? Let's move into something else. I think that has okay. uh, this, this is all correlated, uh, interrelated. Uh, yeah. For instance, to for the specifics for God to be in the specifics, I I feel like that those specifics would 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 harness or or actually guide the inner monologue of, of yes yeah, so let's talk about the inner monologue how that is connected with communion and 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 what we're talking about okay great that's a great question and again you ask these super super deep questions i mean i i teach classes that are eight weeks long on on all of these individual <laughs> things for this reason but it's a, it's a great great question and so when i use the term inner monologue and that is one of our tools right that's in the book inner monologue right um it has a couple meanings again these are you know 
These are all phrases, that's why I call them tools, that I do not have clear definitions. They're existential. Yep. They're, they're, we're going to struggle to find uh, black and white definitions. Instead, we use them as guides. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about inner monologue, um, the most literal way that I use that phrase is, you know, what is a character considering in the moments both that they're speaking and in between the dialogue in the, mm-hmm. you know, magic pauses. Stanislavski also said the magic is in the pauses mm. and he didn't mean he wanted big pregnant, you know, theatrical pauses. That's not what he meant. He meant the inner monologue of the character that's going on as these dramatic emotional exchanges take place between themselves and other characters in these grand stories that they're living through because right. let's let's i mean let's be frank we're not going to watch a movie about the most boring parts of people or characters lives That's it's true. the most important parts of their lives and so they're emotional mm-hmm. and you know we want to know what are the inner monologues of the characters that are going on during these exchanges now that's that's kind of the most literal um way that i use the phrase but then it's also used in you know, when an actor is working on a character, we need to know what the actor is doing in terms of their inner monologue, you know, as they're moving through, you know, what we call um, the the moving toward performance level. Mm-hmm. And that's just a phrase. It's again, it's a scale, but, but in the beginning, middle, and, you know, before we go up and put something in front of a camera, what, what is the actor's inner monologue during the conscious work phase of the of the workflow that we're doing you know what is going on are you in your head are you considering a piece of direction that we talked about are you ta- are you thinking about one of the tools while you're actually in the scene you know what what's the inner monologue and um so it's and so you know, you're talking about the inner monologue of the actor then oh, uh you oh. know uh and 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 again we get to like this double function thing because okay. i i will think i i will talk to my actors often whether i'm teaching or or directing i will say you know once once we once the the, the the we yell action or once the curtain comes up i don't want your inner monologue to be talking to you on behalf of you i want it to be okay. the character who is constantly reacting and 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 right. and gauging the 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 moment and how am I going to react to this and what what do I feel about this is 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 so there are there two inner monologues yes different the, the same phrase used differently okay and what you just hit on is exactly correct once we work once we reach what I call performance level right we I do not like you I don't want the actor in their head at all and now we're back to this word communion all I want to see is the unconscious link between themselves and the other actor performer or the character on stage. And hopefully all the work that was done initially as we were talking about the actor's inner monologue, that's gone. And Mm -hmm. and all we see is communion. And it's real. It's the realism is there and the link between the two actors is there and they are not in their heads. They're completely linked together. And once we get to that state, now I can yell cut and talk to the actor as they step out of the character about the inner monologue of the character in certain moments. And that's one of the things I got from Stanislavski. Hey, step out of the character for a minute. I need to talk to you as the actor. (laughs) And, you know, Stanislavski said, you know, the, the goal is to have the actor and the character 
become one, and here's one of those phrases translated from Russian to English, live the role. Live the role, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's the goal. That's the ultimate goal, but you can't snap your fingers, and the greatest improvisational actor in the world cannot do it for 40 days straight without some workflow. Yes, and you you got this workflow. Like I said, I, I'm counting. Uh, it's it's numbered twenty five things here, uh, and and this is the process by which at some at some point after you put the work into the workflow, of course, uh, is that where you? I I also saw a phrase the flow state. Yeah. What? Uh, so is that is that when when your performance level or you know is that the flow? Talk to about talk to us about the flow state. Okay, what's our rating on your podcast? What's it rated? PG thirteen or R? Oh, we can do R. Keep going. We can do okay. R. So there's a great um, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, John Lee Hooker. He was doing an interview, and there was a person talking talking to him about his what we are talking about now, his workflow. Mm-hmm. He says, man, he's one of the greatest jazz musicians ever. He's just one of the greatest musicians that ever lived. And I'll fast forward the story. But the, the interviewer who, who did not understand how John Lee Hooker was able to do what he did said, well, what are you thinking about? How did you get there? What was your plan when you were on stage? How did you go from this change to that change? What did you? How did you do this when that musician did this, that, that? And he finally, he was polite. And then finally, he just kind of gave up, took a deep sigh, and he said, man, forget all that shit and just fucking play. Oh, gosh. Play the gig, man. <laughs> and that's live. But he was in his flow state yeah, when he's yeah. on stage. He'd been doing it for 40 years. He didn't need to think about how hard to put his finger on the neck of the guitar right. for this chord. It's right. in his and, and, memory. And so the flow state would be another way of saying living the role. And his role was guitarist. But yeah. That's it. That's wow. exactly what it is. Yeah, living the role, and yeah. and uh, and that's what the flow state is. And I know you've had it, and every actor I've ever worked with has mm-hmm. had it. Mm-hmm. They walk off stage or they walk out of a take, and they say, "I don't even know what happened. Was it good?" <laughs> and you say, "Oh my God, that's the best work you've ever done." And they're like, "I was. I don't know what happened. I blanked out." Yeah, you know, yeah. we're in the magical flow state. Well, I, I talk about magic too, and so does Stanislavski. Uh, well, he talks about the magic if, of course, but right. I, you know, sometimes you say that you just uh, well often uh, when you hit that flow state, it's mm-hmm. you created magic, and That's there's it. it's spiritual. There's no other way. You, like you said, you don't even remember it. You have people have to just tell you because you yeah. were too busy just existing and living and and doing yeah. and oh, I love it. Oh God, I yes, I, I do have it. memories. <laughs> That is it, and that's you know that is what illuminating the human condition is all about. Mm. And that's, that's what Stanislavski is 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 really, as you said, that's the ultimate goal of yeah. the actor slash director performer. It is. Well, you've you got- want to hear something? I'll say one more thing about that sure. that, that uh, a lot of people I think don't consider is that you know I've. I had this previous life that we talked about in the beginning as a professional athlete, Mm -hmm. and I have seen this. I saw it with that net zero team I made reference to. I've seen it with the greatest NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, any sport you want to follow, soccer. Many times, if you look at a professional team at a world-class level on paper – who are not champions, mm-hmm. who the team is not the championship team of the season, and then you go look at the championship team, the difference is the communal flow state oh. that they're able to get in together. 
Right. And you, you say, you know, how do these teams win these championships right. over and over when obviously this team has better players, this other team has better mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. And it's because the team as a unit, yes. as a group, is so much stronger than the whole. And they are they are in each other's minds. They're in each other's consciousnesses. Uh, a lot of people in your audience might not know what professional cycling is like, but if they've seen the Tour de France, mm. it's a team sport. There are eight or nine guys on your team, and you need to be linked with them at all times. Right. And that's spiritually, it's physically, you know, we're right next to each other. Your teammate could be in front of you, behind you, right. up the road, you know, and you need to have a, a subconscious link to them in order to get the tactics that you need to do correct. And it's the same way on the stage. It's the same way on a film set. It's the same way on a good television set. If the communion is strong, the project will benefit. So then then uh, this is a question I'm sure listeners are thinking to themselves right now, and I'm going to ask it. Okay. When you talk about the communion, and you're talking about this this flow state where everyone is working in sync and it's just everyone's living. Everyone's done their the workflow. Everyone's prepared. What happens when you've got somebody, and I've had this many times in professional theater, where I would be working opposite someone who is just walking through scenery. You know, they're phoning it in, as they say. That's exactly what it's called. They're phoning it in. Go on. Well, no, that's my question. How do you achieve the flow state? I know that we are supposed to live our character's role, but it, it. I know that, you know, how do you advise your students when, let's say, they come to you with this issue? Hey, I'm in a show. I've done the work. I feel connected. I, you know... It's hard to have communion with someone who d- who hasn't done the work. So I don't um, I, I don't mean to like just push the book, but that is one of the reasons I wrote the book. And okay. the book is a series of tools and techniques that you're going to have to try. And as we talked about, oh, it's one through twenty-five or one through thirty. They're blank workflow templates. They're all these things. Go through the list. Mm-hmm. That's not really it. Okay. I, I make the I make the reference in the book um, to a, a wheel, and that all the spokes in the wheel are all the tools, and they all work together. And you try one spoke to take the tension in one place, and then the wheel turns, and you have to use a different spoke. And now the spokes are all working together, but the ones at the bottom of the wheel are taking more of the tension than the ones on the side or the top. And and you every situation is unique. And I unfortunately hate to give a blase answer, mm-hmm. but there is no one way, and you're going to have to continue to develop what we call your actor IQ yes. and that's what I call it so that you're able to respond to these varying situations sure. of you know artistic um, kind of frustration and still try to do your best work and and there is no one way to do it that I have found and it and one way might work for one actor or director, and it doesn't work for another mm-hmm. actor or director. And um, unfortunately, it, it is a, a unique situational thing that goes on, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And trying to find the answer um, is sometimes very, very difficult. And it's a scale, right, Anne? I mean, right. you. What? What? I'll tell you this. Here's here's what I have found in my experience that does not work is to get frustrated or angry. Right. And and um, Well, how can you concentrate that, and allow the unconscious to it take It does not work. No, yeah. it doesn't. Well, uh, you know, I I I I'm just, you know, for me, uh with this this particular problem. You know, we uh we we talk about objectives, we talk about obstacles. 
as, as method actors, obstacles for our character achieving what they're fighting for. Right. But I think of also that double function of the actor. And I think about the obstacles that other actors or the situation, for instance, you know, I used to do uh, uh, Shakespeare in the park, and it was very difficult sometimes when, uh, you know, car horns were were honking and, and things, you know, what do you think about the term using? those those uh, you know those obstacles uh you know hey this is happening we'll use it you know uh, what what is your opinion about you i'm a fan i'm a fan of it Mm -hmm. um i think again if you're going to use something we need to get specific about what it is you're using and why and in what situation and um you know you can overly simplify it and it does work and it can be really beneficial or you can get a little more complex and deep with it, you know, but I'm a big fan of that. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Stanislav, he said, as you probably have heard, <laughs> you will always play yourself. And when you're not playing yourself, you're acting. Right. And in the Moscow Arts Theater, there's a big sign. It says, no acting, please, in the theater. Right. There's a big sign. Well, and that's and where so- the magic if becomes relevant is because the magic if isn't saying if this were true of my character no 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 no. it's is this if this were true for me for me you know and so that's why you know we are we're playing but we're playing circumstances and situations that and and we're reacting the way we would Mm -hmm. that's correct you're 100 percent correct And that was part two of my interview with Jamie Palanetti, who is the author of Acting as an Art Form. Uh, He is giving us some great stuff, guys. Here it is, part three with Jamie Palanetti. I'm going to back up because... um See, this is we could have a whole podcast on on this one problem because it is, uh, and I don't mean to use the Stanislavski phrase, this one challenge of you know the the kind of bad apple, uh, and 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 it can bring down a production, a mm-hmm. film set, a TV set, and I've seen it many times, a play, a theater company, anything, and um, trying to navigate it is is always so. It is difficult, and actors run into it every day mm-hmm. on all levels, right. from A-list to film school students. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is something that you have to kind of come up with a plan of how, what am I going to do? You know, what 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 are my possible go-tos when I run into this? And like I said, we could have a whole a whole um, kind of discussion on it. But what I will say for producers and directors out there, and this is this is a huge topic of conversation with us now. These problems begin in the beginning, mm-hmm. and who is hired and who are the players on the team, and that's why professional sports teams are constantly reshuffling to try to find the right communal group. Mm. And I have often, we, for years and years and years, we did what I'm going to call showcases in my theater. And what it was is I taught a scene study class. And at the end of the scene study class, the actors would put their scenes up in front of an invited audience. And we did 10 or 12 a year. The class was four weeks long. And then at the end of the four weeks, the actors would, you know, present the scenes to an invited audience so Mm -hmm. that they could see what it was like to perform very important have a little bit of the pressure feel those butterflies get (laughs) get you know 
know, both nervous and excited and then have their rewards and learn from it. Okay, so the point of that is many times <clears throat> I would cast for roles in these, um, you know, showcases and we'd have as many as 10 scenes in one night. These are short one acts, you know, and uh, I would need actors. And so I would use half or three quarters of the actors in my theater company and then I would do a casting for the other roles. <clears throat> Many, many times I did not cast the best actor. Mm. Many times I cast the actor that fit in best with the communion of the group. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to avert those problems ahead of time. And uh, unfortunately in our business, which is an, uh, you know, a different conversation right. of professional acting, directing, filmmaking, and television, that is almost never considered. Mm, wow. And so, well, yeah, a lot of time. I mean, let's uh, nepotism, a lot of uh, weird, uh, horrible, you know, uh, the casting couch. There's so many things that we've even discussed so on this show uh, where the, the reasoning for casting, uh, it can destroy the show. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, or the film or the play. Oh yes, uh, the, whatever it is, and it, yeah. it you know, uh, if 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 what you were t what you're talking about as far as just how well someone whether it whether they have more experience or they're well known, it kills me when just because and I could use an example right now, but I don't want to offend her if she's listening. But there's mm -hmm. a famous actor who gets cast a lot just because of who she is, not because it would be a really good good fit for that particular project um, yeah. and it ends up dooming the project in my opinion 100 almost almost always yes. it will and if it won't if it won't doom it it will not be of the artistic value that it could have been it, if yes. everybody was on the same page with the same goal you know trying to create art now i and will uh, say this though there have been times where i've seen a movie that was cast and the person that they cast was someone I when I heard about it I thought oh well there you go it's gonna be it's gonna be awful because I don't see how th knowing the the per the skills of 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 the person or the limitations of that actor that I had seen in past productions I just didn't see how that could work communally and they would shock me and they obviously did the workflow. They yeah, obviously. they did, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and more than that, I think they had they had a strong communion with their acting partners, the other people on the set, and the director. And that team effort is something that I just push and push and push because, again, I've seen it at the highest levels, and mm -hmm. I know how important it is. Look, everybody in the NBA can play basketball. Every NFL player is great. Every world class mm -hmm. professional cyclist is the 0.01% of the best racers in the world. Why do some teams win and some teams lose? Mm -hmm. And this is why, in yes. my opinion, this is why, you know, and, and you need it in any creative artistic setting with a group of people, it becomes so important, especially if people are stressed, if they're under pressure, right. if they're on time restrictions, you know, whatever it is, the, the stronger the group, the better the results of the project. And, uh, and yeah, that's yeah. why independent film and independent theater has been really my, my home for mm. 20 years. You know, that's wow. what I wanted to do uh, because I have worked on enormous TV shows, enormous commercials, mm. enormous, you know, um, episodic television network shows. And, and um, it's just not enjoyable. Here's the thing. Uh, tell me, 
Okay, this isn't the thing. This is a question. I I think about, for instance, the New England Patriots, and mm-hmm. I and I think about um uh, uh the 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 two uh well what are their names the 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 one guy the bra- the, the 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 Tom Brady yeah Tom Brady but the other guy that that catches the ball for him all the time oh, yeah. uh you know I think okay those two are the leading actors those are the lead act you know the principal the principals Correct. and Correct. then but it is like you said they're they're champions they've been champions because all of the other players have done their workflow they've done they've entered a flow state with the two principles so everyone's working together and you know i i credit the the coach and in yep. and if we get away from the analogy and now apply it straight to theater and film the director the director the, has the control over all of this it's the director and uh, and it has to be the director or the coach and there has to be one of them and they have to have the overall uh, ability to guide the entire project or team mm-hmm. and have players or a, you know um a, a cast what i call a, a hierarchy of a cast with everybody that is one happy with the role they have and two are there for the benefit of the group that's right and and um and that's one of the hardest things to achieve and and you know i'll say it because it is, I do talk about this in the book for actors to understand and study is you need to know your place in the hierarchical right. telling of the story. Right. Not just in the cast between two people that want to be stars. Right. You know, I need to know where does your character fit in the hierarchical telling of the story and how is that important to the central character mm-hmm. who is the person who is Tom Brady, whose story it really is, who's guiding the action. Right. It's there. Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Right. That's what that's what it is, and everybody else is playing a kind of supporting role. Well, and you it know, uh, not important. That's right, and 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 the goal mm-hmm. of the actor, uh, if if they are not the Tom Brady, the goal cannot be to steal the show or to. Oh, or, what's that? They're going to lose. The well, team will. The team will lose. The team will. That. That's right, and the show will fail. Uh, and and the and then and the, I'll tell you what you know. The I've talked a lot on 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 this show uh, with with uh, actors and directors, who you know we we talk about the fact that the audience, they're not dumb. You know, they will suspend their disbelief because they have to, especially in live theater. But but they are not dumb and they know know. when I was in college, I I I was always the star. And then one day I wasn't. They gave I got cast as the nurse in Antigone. And I was de- devastated. I wanted to be Antigone, and and I was devastated. And my the my initial reaction is okay. I'm going to play the hell out of the nurse. I am going to be the. I am just going to make the, the show all about the nurse. You know, that's your that's your your ego, your hero, the, wanting her journey. That's it. And I had to get a hold of myself and realize, Mm-mm. my friend Christy got cast as Antigone, and I was going to play the nurse, but I'm going to play the nurse as she was meant to be played, and and uh, that was how it has to be done. Um, you have, I'll s- tell you, and that is the definition of nobility, mm-hmm. and that's that is why I say sports is one of the last great chances for young people to learn about nobility oh, yes. you know 
because you you team. you are part of the village mm-hmm. the team well the 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 the, the uh, sportsmanship the team yeah. uh the team effort the team you know the team mindset right. uh when it becomes all about yourself uh, right. As an actor, even if you are the principal uh, character, you know the 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 hero or the you know the the uh, you know that if you are not uh, even if you are or if you are not, there should still be an understanding for for what the purpose of the show is and and uh, and allowing allowing that communion to happen. That's it. It's funny because there's a line. I'm I've done you know a lot of plays and i I get them mixed up but i i think it's four dogs and a bone Mm -hmm. and i'm not certain but i think it is and and one of the characters she's going on and on about how she has to be the ingenue i have to be the ingenue i'm gonna be the ingenue (laughs) this is the last time i get to be the ingenue after this i'm somebody's aunt with cancer I love it. I love it. Well, listen, you know, we, well, I, I just got to tell you, I've, I've been looking at the clock and we're into a third, uh, a third episode here and that's oh, no. fine with me. I have to ask you a few more questions if that's okay. okay. Let me make a comment about what you said though, because it's so, you, you're, you're so astute about this and it's so important. Not only are the audiences not dumb, I'm going to go another step further is that they are, they are, begging for somebody to ignite their sixth sense. Oh, yeah. In our world today, especially, Mm. and especially if it's live, you know, they want to feel, they, I believe everyone has these six, seventh, eighth senses, these, these things that have been taken from us Mm. by modern society and technology and, and the suspension of disbelief, which is a whole section in my book about, we, uh, I label it under realism, but mm-hmm. still it is so important to me. And in, and, and in my opinion, I think the audiences of the world are craving it more than ever, yeah. more than ever, because we have lost it. You know, it, we have lost it in our, mm-hmm. in Hollywood, Hollywood right. has lost it. Well, and, um, and yeah. you know, I think about the world uh, of of the let's call it let's let's just deal with theater right now. Uh, okay. But but uh, you know, you think about theater, you can say okay, the the cinema, the you know. But but uh, when an audience member comes in to the theater, they mm-hmm. are entering. Uh, they're hoping that they're entering another world. And another they, dimension, isn't it? In another dimension. And they want to be sucked in. And they want to lose themselves in that world. And the minute that someone is not in that flow state, on that stage, or on that screen, they are snapped out of that world. And what's that? They'll then check their phone. They'll check their phone. They'll go out for popcorn. They'll come back in. The point is, they don't want to check their phone. They really, they want to, like you said, they want their sixth and seventh and eighth senses to be engaged. Uh, They want a spiritual, a spiritual, you know, experience, you know. I agree. I agree with you. And I, I, the, the art of filmmaking, and now it can be called television as well because because of our delivery mechanisms, you know, of the right. computer and the phones, it's all the same thing now. You know, film, TV, episodic, any kind of thing that you're viewing on a device, right. I think that is the greatest threat to our art form is the loss of mm-hmm. realism. Yeah, yep. And, yep. Uh, and, and actually, yeah. actors... 
actors and 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 this and and some of this uh, the communion that we're talking about. It is there's there's another element involved now, and it's special effects, and it's and it's yeah. uh, AI. It's a lot of AI. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that now is, I mean, they're substituting out some some of uh, some of what we would, you know, in the past never thought would we'd have to contend with. Right. Yep. And they're just, you know, they're instead handing people dopamine addiction. Yeah. And it's a different it's a different thing. Right. It is. It's a different thing, and it's a. It's just what it is. I, I say in the book, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, and I use a, I use a, kind of um, a metaphor of the professional wrestling effect. Like there's nothing wrong with professional wrestling. It's uh, entertainment. We need it. Yes. You know, but it's not high art, and um, and and there's a difference, and and they the two have overlapped. And uh, are continuing to overlap, and I know the people that are craving what you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're out there in droves, and yes. um, this is this is this is an ancient thing. You know, there was a reason the Greeks created theater to teach people, as you well know, your theater history, and yeah. even before that, there was a reason why when the Neanderthal, you know, people went out to try to get yeah. food and they came back to the cave and they told the stories right. of what went on that day while everyone sat with their huge eyes around the campfire mm-hmm. trying to learn and experience it vicariously. This is one of the oldest shared ways that we learn and grow as a as a society. Right. You know, and uh disbelief and and the, and there's a there's a uh, uh, what do they call that uh, when 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 you're when you're purging and and you're and you're experiencing through others like a, an audience they they are able uh, vicariously to yeah. experience and also to work through things I mean this is like what you know we're talking about illuminating the human condition I mean really I have having been an actor for uh, you know professional actor for 35 years I I've I, I've had conversations with people who who try to make light of of my career choice and i have put it to them exactly how we are saying this now how important what we are doing is for society throughout history yeah. uh and and i you know i you know i can talk to somebody who well i i'm thinking of a very particular person right now that i you know a friend but but they you know when i was having a problem with in my career they said well then do something real uh, why are you why are you doing this at all and i and i had to express uh, the importance of what i do and yeah. and and what you're doing to help those of us who who want to do this and do it well and when i say do it well that just sounds so trite but it's but it just means be a better at communion yeah do do it to the best of your ability are yeah. you maximizing the gifts you were given by the gods. Oh, you know, yeah. are you maximizing them? That is a life's path. It's well, not a goal. Since I have a few more minutes, because we are doing a third episode, uh, we've we've just got so much to cover. But I'm going to go ahead then, since you said, uh, you know, uh, you you kind of teed this up for me. Uh, we you you do summarize and say that the six most important tools are. And we've talked about it a lot, starting with great communion. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk uh, just for a few minutes on the others. Uh, I know it's hard to, to just, just just summarize, but, you know, no, you've, okay. you've got immediate prior circumstances. So as actors, you know, we have to know what, you know, go ahead and, 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 and let's, let's just discuss the, the last five. Uh, okay. Yeah. So immediate prior circumstances. Right. So that's a very important thing because um, even in the book and all the scenes that uh, are are in the book, most of them, the characters in the scenes are not coming into a situation um, without some kind of prior uh, experiences in their own individual stories or journeys that are important. That, that are important to what we are about to witness. Right. In other words, what were the characters doing, thinking, feeling emotionally immediately before the first line or the first opening shot? Right. And when we tell stories in film and television, you know, there are huge gaps in the timeline of the characters right. and we see them have one experience and then we don't know what happens. We just assume that certain things go on as an audience member. And then we see them in a, having a new experience in the next scene. So the well, actor, what, the actor needs to know what those 100%, circumstances Right. 100%. The, the, the kind of analogy is that if you got knocked unconscious as a human being completely and, and, this has happened to you know lots of people, and then you suddenly wake up and you're dropped into this foreign world with these people in front of you that you don't know how they got there, or how you got there, or what is happening, and you're expected to engage with them. It's impossible. Right. You don't know how you got there. And for characters or for actors who are trying to manufacture both emotion and verbiage out of the dark, it's just never works. It, it, it's never believable. But if I, I have found in my experience directing actors that if we just discuss thoroughly, okay, where was your character in the previous 5, 15, 30 seconds, one minute before the word action? Where were you? What, were your, what was your character doing? Why were they doing it? How were they feeling about this particular situation that they're walking into and the person who's in it with them, is that person a stranger or do you know them? If you know them, what's the relationship? Why did you come here? Right? What That's what we call an inciting incident. It's right. related to <clears throat> media prior circumstances. Why is your character here? Something happens to bring your character here. If it's just happenstance or coincidence, that's almost never the case, not in screenplays. So you know. that would be number two on your most important tools. You right. have number three and four listed, and I, I think there's a real connection between find an objective which is number mm-hmm. three, and what is my character's problem? Uh, yeah. How how do you differentiate those three and four like that? Okay, so let's use, uh, <clears throat> let's give Stanislavski's <clears throat> definition of the word problem, and it isn't the English definition. Right. You know, uh, a problem in the system that we use is what is the other character or actor or both, same thing, what are they doing to keep me from getting what I want? Ah. Not just what are they saying, but what are the verbs they're playing? What's the emotional communion they're giving me that's keeping me from getting what I want in this scene, no matter what it is? You know, what is the problem that I'm receiving? Well, because if you know wants? your objective, if, if they, if they yeah. know what their character wants, they want. well, mm-hmm. then they would just get it. But there's got to be a problem in order for there yeah. to be a play or, or a movie. Yeah. 
And when I was taught the method, the Stanislavski method, way back in film school, when I was taught it, the three classes, the, th the way they broke it down in your introductory classes were objective, problem, and action. There what you do go. I want? What's the other character keeping and how doing are gonna get? me from it? And mm -hmm. what am I doing in return? And, and then the fourth part of that is transition. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. You know, action, counteraction, action, transition. Action, counteraction, action, transition. And ultimately transformation, too, uh, is, is in there. I don't know. Uh, do you yeah. cover any uh, transformation in the book? I, I don't use that phrase. I have heard it used. I can't remember which of the masters coined that one. It was Uta Hagen or Stella Adler, yeah. or, you know, Rosberg, and they all kind of played with the language. But yes, I do use the the, the philosophy of it. Hundred percent. Yeah, because you're going, your character is going to be different by the time they do all these things that you're set, you're listing here. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, needing something. And, yeah. and then not being able to get it and then taking yeah. action and transitioning as they're going through all the, the you know, the work to to solve the problem. Uh, there's going to be a transformation. And then you end these six most important tools with relationship. Now, is there a reason why relationship is the sixth tool? So this is a little bit... Um misleading and i should have clarified this these are not written in, in order, order oh. that yeah okay and again like with the entire system each one will affect the other and sure. the more work you do on relationship the greater communion you will have and the more you'll be able to you know um give meaning to the immediate prior circumstances and vice versa right. and that's you know, that's what I say to um, all the actors is that if you go to the definition section, you know, of the tools in the book, I don't even know how many there are, yeah. but there's, I don't know, there might be seven, 60 or 70. And every time you're able to up your actor's IQ, you know, or mm -hmm. raise your awareness mm -hmm. level and the way that you're able to use one of the tools in that particular role and in that particular um, uh, production, the the more the other tools will be affected and the more you'll be able to then go to the next tool. And that's why I say, look, this is a workbook as right. much as anything. Right. And use what you need. This is Stanislavski's phrase. I'm going to steal this. <laughs> and he said, look, the, the method is great when you need it. Yes. But once you've done the work and you don't need it anymore, you know, now it's time to perform. And live. Live. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell yeah. you what, guys. Uh, I'm talking to the listeners now. This is an amazing book. It's called Acting as an Art Form. It's written by our guest, Jamie Paulinetti. I am going to be linking all everything we've talked about especially the book your playhouse uh, the uh, uh, the Atwater Playhouse uh, uh, and everything that we've discussed will be linked to this podcast but Jamie man I have benefited as much as the listeners to what I've been talking to you about today and what you have shared with us so much more we didn't even get to a few of the questions and we've been at it for an hour and a half now and this is going to be three episodes well, well I will say and I do you know I, I obviously I've been doing this 25 plus years and uh, I do want to say and that you know this has been so much fun for me because you're just so well versed and your preparation was so meticulous and that's the that that is the conscious you know part of the work that you needed to do that that not 
everyone who I've spoken to about this art form does. And it, mm-hmm. and it just speaks to what we're talking about. It's so important, right, to have a workflow, to be yes. prepared, to be knowledgeable. You sent me, your listeners don't know this, but you sent me all kinds of different questions, comments, and things that you wanted to talk about. It was very clear that you had done the work and the preparation. And that's, I think, why we were able to talk for 90 minutes. I didn't <laughs> even know it's been 90 minutes. Oh. And we could do another 90 minutes. I, I think just want to thank could. you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, Jamie, you're awesome, man. I tell you what, I'm in Vegas. You know, of course, I I, I live in Vegas now. I was in Hollywood for many years, but mm-hmm. I tell you what, if I get back there, you better believe I'm going to be coming over there and hopefully you'll... Oh, <laughs> I, I just hope you'll let me sit in and I want to just see 100%. you in... I want to see you in action, man. Um, Hey, Jamie, stay on the line. I'm going to close okay. the session out here with the audience, but I want to say a proper goodbye to you. Uh, But guys, uh, don't forget, we are on every podcast site, uh, Apple, Google podcast, um, you know, Spotify, of course. So make sure that you're you're not only going on, but uh, and 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 tuning in, but subscribe, and even give us a good rating, if you will, and tell your friends about us. We're doing really well right now with everybody. And I just want to keep it going. All right, you guys, don't forget, we're here every Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And this has been the actor's guide. Tag, you're it. This has been The Actor's Guide. For more information about Ann Johnston-Brown or to join the tag team, please visit our website at ajbprods.com slash podcast.